财富自由，富是父亲的富。两个中年爸爸闲聊美股、流行，另类育儿经。财富自由想象是百灵果跟古玩的结合。告诉你谁是 Magnificent Seven 科技七五四？你该买瘦瘦比双巨头吗？从马斯克到泰勒斯，从华尔街到好莱坞，我们都追得上。新的一年听新的 Podcast， 让我们一起财富自由。富是父亲的富哦。Global Voices on Taiwan. Welcome to Global Voices on Taiwan. I'm Rath Wang, a news producer and host. Hello, everybody. My name is Vincent Chow. I serve as the director of the DPP's International Affairs Department as and as a spokesperson for the Lie Campaign. Thanks for tuning in. We'll be exploring with you on how the latest world events impact Taiwan and how this island nation shakes the world. We invite international journalists, experts, and policymakers to talk about Taiwan and to share their thoughts on current events here. Joining us today from Washington D.C. is David Sachs from the Council on Foreign Relations. David is the director of the task force U.S.-Taiwan Relations in a New Era, responding to a more assertive China. He was also previously in charge of political military affairs at AIT, the U.S. de facto embassy to Taiwan. Welcome to the podcast, David. Jumping right intro of the task force's report, it starts off with quote: "The U.S. has critical strategic interests in the Taiwan Strait. Can you tell us why the security of Taiwan matters so much to America?" Yeah. So, like you said, what we tried to do with the task force report is not assume that. A、uh, reader knows what U.S. interests are at stake in the Taiwan Strait, and so we wanted to lay those out. And I think that you know the United States has an array of important interests. And so what I would start with are number one, geography, which you can't wish away or change. And so Taiwan sits at the heart of the first island chain, which stretches from Japan down through Taiwan and into the Philippines, and it really anchors. Um, a critical network of U.S. allies and partners in East Asia. So, if you look at what the region looks like with the PLA on the island, it's far more difficult for the United States to defend two of its treaty allies, Japan as well as the Philippines,、um, and it allows the PLA to project power far beyond its shores. So, I think that just the fact of where Taiwan is makes it a critical strategic interest for the United States. I think it's fundamentally different and changed permanently. To be honest,、um, this is a region where I could, I believe that leaders in Tokyo and Seoul will rethink their posture, whether they can rely on the United States for their security or whether they have to take it into their own hands by potentially developing nuclear weapons. Where weaker countries in Southeast Asia decide to accommodate Chinese interests because they don't have the power to.、Um, Don't have the power to necessarily protect their own security, and I think that this is a region that is far more unstable with less U.S. influence. I think economically, that's been a lot of focus in Washington over the last number of years. But we all know the statistics: Taiwan produces 90% of the world's most advanced semiconductors, roughly 60% of all global semiconductors. We're talking about a global depression that shapes trillions of dollars off of economic output. Uh, you look at how difficult it would be to reconstitute semiconductor manufacturing in somewhere like the United States, Europe, or Japan, 
And this is not just a, a short recession. I think it's a prolonged global depression that's incredibly difficult to get out of. So there's that reality. So the way that I would lay this out is that the United States has you know, critical strategic, economic, as well as political interests here in the Taiwan Strait. So, I mean, just to recalibrate again, um, you, what you're saying is that defending Taiwan and supporting Taiwan's defense and ensuring contingency scenario essentially never takes place. That's all within uh, the United States national security interests. And certainly, um, I, I would probably argue within the interests of the global community as well, at least um, democracies around the world. And so, you know, as we think about Taiwan's defense, then I, I, I do think from my personal perspective, um, Ensuring that we have a robust defense isn't a call for war. It isn't necessarily a lead-on to a contingency scenario. In effect, uh, in fact, it's probably the opposite. Um, having a robust defense and having strengthened partnerships um, and and further um, security ties with the United States contributes to defense and status quo in the in the in the cross-strait scenario. I mean, would you agree with that, David? I agree. I mean, I think that you know the way I look at it is that regardless of what we might think of Xi Jinping's goals and objectives, I don't think he's crazy. I think that he's a rational actor who weighs the costs and benefits. So, you know, if Taiwan lets the military balance slip uh, further towards the PRC, and if the United States lets that occur as well, then I think Xi Jinping might wake up one day and say, you know what, this is going to cost a lot but actually I can bear these costs and the benefits outweigh them. But what we do have in our control, Taiwan, the United States, Japan, and other partners of ours, is to affect that cost-benefit calculus. So those are all things that we have in our power to affect, and I think that that's what the United States and, and Taiwan need to work on. I think the key point uh, that you made is Xi Jinping waking up and saying today's not the day and the risks and costs are simply insurmountable. And I think that's precisely uh, what this administration has been doing, but we're also, I think, quite happy at that idea that this seems to have received some sort of um, cross-party consensus here in Taiwan, um, and supporting our uh, defense is something that I think uh, the public here generally supports. I mean, I haven't seen a lot of pushback against um, the actions and the reforms that have been taking place, whether in the reserve uh, field uh, or lengthening conscription back to one year. Um, or um, engaging in asymmetric reforms. I think certainly there have been some people that have been critical of certain aspects of it, but I think by by and whole, I think most people do see this as necessary to keeping peace and stability in the Taiwan Strait. I want to ask a bit about maintaining long-term deterrence. Um, obviously, we see the PLA building up, and what do you think it takes, You know, as Vincent just mentioned, the Taiwan's taking bold steps to enhance our deterrence capabilities and what do you see as necessary to make sure that, as you mentioned and Vincent mentioned, that Xi Jinping wakes up and says this from decades, from today to like 2060 or whenever, this is not the day? So I would break that out into two parts, actually. So I think that you have the 180,000 or, or so Taiwanese men and women who are in the armed forces and we can have uh, discussions about what more Taiwan can do to strengthen the Ministry of National Defense and its military. There, I would say, you know, continuing to raise the budget is critical. Taiwan's at roughly 2.5% of GDP, so above what we ask of our NATO allies. But I think if you look at Israel or you look at Cold War averages for the United States, 
I would argue that Taiwan spending should be higher. And I think that Taiwan as a, as a rich society and one where the economy has been doing quite well, these are uh, expenditures that it can afford. So I don't think it's asking too much. Then you have the question of how you spend that money. And I think Vincent already touched on a lot of the things um, that we've been asking of Taiwan, the United States has been asking of Taiwan, which are to invest in asymmetric weapons. And what that means is, you know, smaller, cheaper, more survivable systems. So we're talking about mines, missiles, drones. And I'm pleased to see that Taiwan has really been investing in developing that capability indigenously. Uh, beyond the equipment, of course, is how you use it. We've seen, for instance, with Russia, the difficulty of, uh, of that military conducting combined arms maneuver. Uh, I think the Chinese would struggle with that as well. But really what we've seen the Ukrainians leverage, I think, is an NCO core that is really empowered. And that's where Taiwan's military can also make significant progress. So I think what we would want to see out of Taiwan's military is a more decentralized command and control structure, one that's able to operate without um, necessarily, you know, all of its radars and communications networks fully functioning. But then the broader point, and this is where I think we're, we're only starting to scratch the surface, is about the other 22 plus million Taiwanese men and women. But I think that really the recognition here has to be that Taiwan society as a whole has to be more resilient um, and able to mount a resolute defense. And not just, uh, this isn't just something that we delegate to the men and women in uniform. And for the United States, I think that there's also a lot more that we can do, uh, whether that's unilaterally, uh, our own military posture in the Indo-Pacific, or with our allies and partners above all Japan. Those are critical conversations that we should be having. David, I'm, it's a tough message, actually, because... What's happening internally here in Taiwan is that when you talk about all society defense, when you talk about all-out mobilization, when you talk about um, buying new asymmetric capabilities such as uh, mine layers, for example, you, you, you do attract a certain segment of maybe the political sphere, but also the population at large that is just, I think, number one, fearful of this idea that this does entail a whole society effort to defend against China, but also um, the idea that um, that this is breaking past military norms. And I'm certain these norms had existed, and I think they may be just a figment of people's imaginations. But these ideas that war could be, could be kept at bay, and that, for example, these age-old notions that, um, that any conflict would be contained at sea or contained at air without impacting Taiwan, and that if, for example, we're thinking about asymmetric warfare, urban warfare, we're thinking about, you know, engaging in a uh, all-out mobilization effort, this would bring ruin to Taiwan society like Ukraine. Now, you know, you and I don't subscribe to these views, uh, but the fact is these views exist here in Taiwan, and I'm curious how you would respond to that. I mean, that's a very good question, and it's difficult for me to, to answer that. But I think when you look at Ukraine, what really did um, what really did trigger a lot of the aid that we saw and a lot of the momentum behind um, providing you know aid and support to Ukraine was the images of Ukrainians resisting, and you know towns and villages across Ukraine resisting Russian. It's absolutely necessary to show this kind of commitment to actually prevent conflict from taking place. So that's a tough political message in Taiwan. And I think one that we continue to struggle with because ultimately everybody wants peace. I mean, you want peace. I want peace. I think um, 
you know, there's there's no rational person, uh, maybe aside from the CCP, that um, that would desire anything but peace across the Taiwan Strait. I think all of us really we're just struggling in terms of how we can portray the best message um, and the best way for getting there. So <laughs> that's it's tough. So I would just add to that uh, to what you said, Vincent, is that you know deterrence isn't just about capabilities, but it's about showing that you're willing and able to use those capabilities, right? And so, you know, if Taiwan invests in um, drones and mines and missiles, that's one thing, and that's a fundamental uh, prerequisite to deterrence. But it's also showing to the PRC that Taiwan does have the unity, the will, and the resolve to actually use those capabilities. But apart from defense, um, your report also talks about boosting Taiwan's resilience and economic competitiveness. We've seen recently the U.S. and Taiwan passed the 21st century trade agreement. Um, how helpful is this? And do you feel more is needed? And will you see more rolling out from the administration and throughout the U.S. circles? So I do think that more is needed. Um, you know, just to talk about the scope of our bilateral economic relationship, you know, Taiwan is a top 10 trading partner. We trade more with Taiwan than we do with countries like um, India or Italy. So Taiwan is a major partner of the United States. I was pleased to see um, just recently that the Senate uh, Finance Committee, I believe, uh, passed the double taxation agreement um, between the United States and Taiwan. I think if we can clear that up so that we can remove double taxation, that would be a step in the right direction. I'm an advocate of a comprehensive bilateral U.S.-Taiwan um, trade agreement. But I have been pleased to see both Democrats and Republicans um, come out publicly in support of a U.S.-Taiwan free trade agreement. You know, free trade in the United States is a dirty word. That's something where we have a bipartisan consensus and it's an opposition to trade agreements. Um, but I think that it's telling that the one trade agreement where you can get Democrats and Republicans to support is for a U.S.-Taiwan trade agreement. So I would like to see us continue to push in that direction. Um, again, I give credit to the Tsai administration for lifting the ban on the U.S. Um, pork and beef. Um, it was banned for a long time. And I think that because we've um, lifted that barrier, I, I don't see anything standing in the way. It's just a question of political will, I think, on, on both sides, but mostly on the U.S. side. So. I would like to see the double taxation agreement um, result, you know, signed up. I would like to see a bilateral free trade agreement. And then I think down the road, if there's a way to bring Taiwan into IPEF or other regional um, economic agenda. I think one of the um, one of the issues, David, is that uh, that that we've made positive progress on is breaking past this age-old notion that trade has to be about trade. And um, it's it's really a matter of economic security, supply chain security, economic resiliency, more so, I think, than trade these days. Because, I mean, Taiwan and the United States have highly liberalized trade regimes. I, I don't think we have high tariffs um, going either either way. And so people that argue that, hey, I mean, a trade agreement is going to be of limited economic benefit. While that may be the case, I think there are astronomical security benefits to be derived from that. And all of that contributes, again, to the topic we've been discussing today, which is uh, resiliency. As a last question, David, I, I I was actually curious to hear your insight because I wanted to go back a bit about um, the report that you guys uh, have worked on. And you write U.S.-Taiwan relations in a new era. And I'm curious, how would you define a new era? Like, what is the outlook uh, going forward? How is 
the U.S. in particular going to respond to a more assertive China, both domestically as well as in terms of its relationship with Taiwan? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, one of the things that we dealt with as a group and something that's often debated in the United States is what's driving cross-strait tensions. Do you put 100% of the blame on Taiwan, 100% of the blame on the PRC, 50-50? And we wanted to, you know, wrestle with that, obviously, but we came out squarely saying that the biggest change here has occurred in the PRC. Um, The reason why we see cross-strait tensions rising is because we have a more powerful, assertive China that is frankly, you know, in my view, seeking to change the status quo in its favor on a consistent basis. And we can see that in the military realm, in the economic realm, in the diplomatic and political realm. Uh, We could have long discussions about the distortion of UN Resolution 2758. We have near daily incursions into Taiwan's air defense identification zone. We have sanctions on Taiwanese uh, products targeting you know, certain sectors that are aligned with a certain political party in certain geographies within Taiwan. We see interference in Taiwan's domestic political process, as well as Taiwan's exclusion from international organizations. So you look at the body of evidence, and I think that what the new era is, is that China has far more capabilities. Uh, it is far more powerful than it has been in the modern era. Uh, And it's frankly not afraid to use those capabilities to pursue its interests. And it defines Taiwan as, you know, the core of China's core interests. So it continues to push on this. And the question is, the path that we are on right now is the trajectory that we are on right now, one that will ensure continued cross-strait peace and stability for years and decades? Or is the path that we're on leading to an erosion of deterrence as well as, um, you know, major questions within Taiwan about, you know, the U.S. commitment to Taiwan as well as um, as well as its ability as a society to stand up to to these pressures. And the conclusion of our report is that we need to make adjustments, right? The path we're on right now is not doing enough to shape Xi Jinping's calculus. So the question is, what do we do here to restore uh, a semblance of balance? in the Taiwan Strait, this is difficult and it's going to be rocky because when you do things that we call for, you know, Beijing doesn't want to see that and they will react. But we think you have to be, you have to accept those risks to get to a better end state in the future. David, but I did have one point of follow-up just quickly um, on my side, but uh, I mean, does Xi Jinping mean what he says? I mean, because it's funny because you have new era in the title, as it pointed out, and new era is something that uh, the CCP likes to use um, in reference to Xi Jinping's new era, and he has this new era white paper on um, on 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 Taiwan, and within this white paper, he's actually quite uh, well. I mean, the CCP is actually uh, quite clear. I mean, um, unification is the only end result. One country, two systems is the only end result in their view that is acceptable for the Chinese people, um, and. I'm curious, um, does he mean what he says? Well, I think that we need to take him seriously and at his word. You know, I think that we look right, we look back right now on all of these statements that Putin made about Ukraine in the years leading up to 2022, and the evidence was there, right? We just thought that he was doing what he was doing, saying what he was saying for a domestic political audience, or venting, or or you know, letting off steam. But I think that when we look back at those statements and we look at, you know, the paper that Putin wrote about Ukraine, he was 
deadly serious about it. And so Xi Jinping, I take him at his word and I take him seriously. Um, I don't think that he has a firm, fixed deadline to achieve unification with Taiwan. But I see worrying signs that he's determined to see this through on his watch and doesn't want to pass it on to a successor. So you see explicit linkages between unification and achieving the rejuvenation of the Chinese nation, which he has said must be completed by 2049. But what's striking to me is actually that Xi Jinping seemingly um, seems to more closely link this every time he speaks. Most recently, I think uh, over a year ago or so, that he said that achieving unification is the essence of national rejuvenation. And you look at the white paper, I mean, that's an example to me of where, where China is trying to move the status quo, because I think that in Beijing, they see that a formal declaration of independence and a referendum in Taiwan is not in the cards. So, you know, what are they after now? It, it's a very nebulous term of desinicization. So now in Taiwan, it's any change to your textbooks, to street names, to, um, you know, culture is something that the PRC can object to and put down as a marker to say that Taiwan is moving towards independence, salami slicing um, its way there. So I see the PRC in a problematic way, looking for other pretexts that it could use for aggression against Taiwan, because what we have seen as the traditional um, areas where the PRC would, would take decisive action, namely a declaration of independence, frankly, I, I don't believe is going to happen. So now we see the focus shifting elsewhere, which is in some ways more difficult for us to, to respond to because the PRC can define you know, what it believes is a problematic thing that Taiwan is doing. Well, it seems uh, like the CCP has continuously uh, moved the goalposts here um, uh, to fit a narrative that they've been trying to build. And I mean, I, I don't know if you agree, David, but I this does seem to extend beyond domestic politics here. Like, we're not going to go into domestic politics in this show. Uh, but I mean, from the CCP's perspective, this seems to be a historical mission that extends beyond whoever is in power at the moment in Taiwan. Yeah, and I think that the big question here and one that's being hotly debated in the United States and you have experts coming down on both sides of it is what happens when economic growth slows in China and what does the CCP do to legitimize you know, one-party rule in the, in the PRC? And so some scholars say, well, you know, if China has severe economic difficulties it's more likely to retrench, to try to have a stable and peaceful international environment so it can deal with economic issues. Um, the tensions with the United States and the West and other countries will only lead to you know, investors fleeing and, um, and trade you know, plummeting. But there's the other side of the coin, which believes that you know, if, if Xi Jinping isn't able to deliver economic growth, what is his legacy? Uh, how does he personally stay in power for another 10 to 15 years? And if he is determined to go down in history as a leader on par with Mao, you know, what is the legacy that he shows the Chinese people? Is it one belt, one road? Is it common prosperity? Uh, what is it? And for those observers, you know, Taiwan fits the bill, right? Um, it is something that would put him in history alongside Mao, and it's something that would that would cause many, I think, to forget about the economic uh, difficulties that, that they've recently encountered. So there is a debate, I think, occurring on whether, you know, going forward, the PRC will be less assertive, less aggressive, or whether 
it looks to Taiwan to create a diversion or a way to, to forget about its, its domestic economic problems. Well, we certainly hope that scenario never takes place. And I think we're committed to that. And I think the steps that you've outlined in the report and the steps that we continue to take as Taiwanese, uh, hopefully that does provide sufficient um, and ongoing deterrence to ensure that this scenario never comes to fruition. Um, David, thank you so much for your insights. Your insights have been just invaluable in informing the discussion, uh, both on Taiwan-U.S. relations, but also about how we can keep a, sta- uh, a stable and safe cross-strait environment. To ensure you don't miss out on exciting insights from the Silent Nation's captivating stories, make sure to subscribe on your preferred podcast or social media platform. You can also check out our full video on YouTube. 